1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the, perf when the perfect comes, the partial will will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part that I shall know fully, fully even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these, is love. Modern Grace We're now on our last installment of Love as the Fruit of the Spirit. What is this love? 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 and 3 uh, says, It's helpful in defining God's love in a practical way. Whoever believes that Jesus is the, is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. God intends the love of him and the love of man to be inseparable parts of the same experience. John explains this by saying that if we love the Father, we also love the child. If we love the Father who begot the children, we must love the children. Otherwise, we do not have God's love. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, he amplifies this. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he's not seen? 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 is the Bible's basic definition of love. The commandments defined make clear what the basic elements are of love are, and what direction our actions should take if we would to show love. This means that obedience to God is the proof of love. Obedience is an action that submits to a command of God, a principle revealed in his word and or an example of the God, of God or the godly. In a sense, 
This is where godly love begins in a human being. Obeying God, uh, God's commandments is love because God is love, because his very nature is love. It is impossible for him to sin. Thus, he gives us commands in love, and they will produce right and good results. Any command of God reflects what he himself would do were he in the same situation. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. Keeping the commandments is how one expresses love. He adds in, verse, uh, in John chapter 15, verse 10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. A person may have thought to do good or to refrain from evil. He may have a feeling of compassion, pity, or mercy. One may feel revulsion about doing an evil action, but none of these become love until the thought or feeling motivates one to act. In the biblical sense, love is an action. Love yet has yet another aspect, however. We can show love coldly, reluctantly, in, quote, dutiful, dutiful obedience, excuse me. We can also show it in joyous, wholehearted enthusiasm or warm-hearted, thankful devotion. Which is more attractive to God or man as a witness? Regardless of the attitude, it is far better to obey than not at all. Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 through 31. If we cannot get beyond doing what is right, the proper feelings will never be formed. Experience is largely responsible for training attitude and emotion. We will never form proper emotions without first performing the right actions with the right spirit, God's Holy Spirit. Coming to know God. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6 helps us understand how we can have the right attitude and emotion in our obedience. Now by this we know that we love him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk, just as he walked. We come to know God through the same general process we get to know fellow human beings by fellowshipping or experiencing life with them. Around 500 years before Christ, Greek philosophers believed that they could come to know God through intellectual reasoning and argument. This idea had a simple premise, that man is curious. They reasoned that it is, that it is man's nature to ask questions. Since God made man so, if men asked the right questions and thought them through, they would force God to reveal himself. Now, the flaw in this is seen in the fruit it produced. Though it supplied a number of right answers, it did not, could not, make men moral beings. Such a process could not change man's nature. To them, religion became something akin to higher mathematics, it was intense mental activity yielding intellectual satisfaction, but no moral action. Plato and Socrates, for example, 
saw nothing wrong with homosexuality. The gods of Greek mythology also reflect this immorality as they had the same weaknesses as human beings. A few hundred years later, the Greeks pursued becoming one with God through mystery religions. One of their distinctive features was the passion play, which always had the same general theme, the passion play. A god lived, suffered terribly, died a cruel, unjust death, and then rose to life again. Before being allowed to see the play, an, an initiate endured a long course of instruction and aesthetic discipline. As he progressed in the religion, he was gradually worked into a state of intense expectation. Then at the right time, his instructors took him to the Passion Play, where they orchestrated the environment to heighten the emotional experience. Cunning lightning, lighting, excuse me, sensuous music, fragrant incense, and uplifting liturgy. As the story developed, the initiate became so emotionally involved that he himself, or he identified himself, and believed he shared the God's suffering, victory, and immortality. But this exercise failed them in coming to know God. Not only did it change man's nature, or excuse me, not only did it not change man's nature, but the passion play was also full of lies. The result was not knowing the true God, but feeling. It acted like a religious drug, the effects of which were short-lived. It was a very abnormal experience, something like a modern Pentecostal meeting where worshipers pray down the spirit and speak in tongues. Such activities are escapes from the realities of ordinary life. God reveals himself. Contrast these Greek methods with the Bible's way of knowing God. Knowledge of God comes not by speculation or emotionalism, but by God's direct self-revelation. In other words, God himself initiates our knowing of him, beginning our relationship by drawing us by his spirit. What God reveals is equally important. He reveals himself as a holy, loving, and giving God with a purpose so awesome that our minds cannot grasp its full implications, though we can appreciate it. He shows that if we are truly, if we truly desire to be part of his awesome creative purpose, our covenant with him obligates us to be as holy, loving, and giving as he is. God guides and empowers us in this great pilgrimage by the Holy Spirit, but obedience following God's commands is the way we begin to experience and grow in God life, God, called eternal life in the scriptures. By obedience, we come to know God. It is like walking in his shoes, as it were. In its biblical usage, the word, quote, know implies intimacy. From biblical examples, this implication can even mean sexual intimacy. That is really knowing someone very closely, especially considering how long a relationship with God exists. When we apply this to our relationship with God, the sexual dimension disappears and the intimacy becomes a deep and abiding reverence, devotion, and loyalty. People may think of God as nothing more than an intellectual exercise, 
They might say, I know God or believe in a first cause or creator without having any moral comp comp compunction, excuse me, compunction, that's the function. They go to church on Sunday and live the rest of the week just like all their neighbors and coworkers. People may be emotional, saying God is in them and that they are filled with the, quote, spirit, yet fail to see God in terms of commandments. They see God as something warm and snuggly, a grandfatherly figure who rushes to aid, their, aid to blow away their problems, but they do not see him as still purposefully creating. Unmistakably and without compromise, Jesus, Paul, and John show that the only way we can show we know God, that he is in us and we love him, is if we have been regenerated by his spirit and are obeying him. How high is the standard? We can approach this question in a number of different ways, but in comparing some scriptures, the answer becomes clear as we see a pattern develop. Jesus states, the second great commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's from Matthew chapter 22, verse 39. All by itself, this establishes a very high standard because we love ourselves so much. We will sacrifice a great deal to please ourselves. He raises this a notch or two when he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. This is a great challenge, confirming that the love of God is certainly not natural to us. Our Savior also says in uh, John chapter 15, verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Paul draws this standard out even further. By, reiter by, by reiterating Jesus' own example in Romans chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He adds in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, that we are love, that we are to love, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. We are dealing with a love of such towering strength and determination that one with it will sacrifice himself over a long time, even for his enemies. And if that's not enough, he will finally give himself totally in death for their well-being before it is reciprocated. Will we ever live up to that? It is possible, but only because God has made us partakers of his divine nature. We now have the same spirit in us that enabled and empowered Jesus. Peter writes, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, our, of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. Love, godly love, is the fruit, the product of the Spirit, which now courses through our lives. That Spirit guides us and leads us into truth. 
It remains our responsibility, however, to choose to follow its guidance, to obey the truths of the great God who is creating his image in us. Obedience to his commands is godly love. The fruit of his spirit that empowers us, the supreme virtue of the Almighty Creator. This sermon was written by James Rittenbaum from the Church of the Great God in Charlotte, North Carolina. And that concludes this wonderful uh, testimony of, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, <laughs> um, this wonderful testimony from the man of John Rittenbaum who gives us his thoughts on uh, love, the fruit of the Spirit. And I can't think of any finer thoughts that I've ever read before. And I hope that you've gotten something uh, out of this. I hope that this has changed your um, your thinking. And uh, mine too, actually. Both of us, all of us. It will change our thinking and change our hearts. And let's end this with a bit of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you for these men who take your word, break it down, and instruct us in the way that we need to go as you do, Lord. And I ask that you be with every person listening within the sound of my voice. Every person, let us, and including me, Lord, including me, to help soak this into my mind and let it drip into my heart that we may become better disciples and better lovers of our, man, our mankind and freedom around the world. In Jesus' name, amen.